Right, welcome to episode three of the Security Conversations podcast. My guest this week is Kim Zetter, award-winning journalist, best known for her work writing about security, privacy, cybercrime, cyber espionage over at Wired. Kim, you're now a freelancer. Can you talk a little bit about where are some of the places we can find your work today? Uh, yeah, so I've done some stuff for the Washington Post, for Motherboard, for The Intercept, working on some stuff with the New York Times, and I've got some other things in the works, um, signing contracts at the moment. Awesome. And of course, we can't have this conversation without mentioning that you're officially an author. The official tome on, uh, on, on Stuxnet, Kong Dong to Zero Day, your book, which came out in 2015. Uh, paperback came in 2015. The hardcover was November 2014. November 2014. Countdown to Zero Day, Stuxnet, and the launch of the launch of the world's first digital weapon. I would argue the first known, first discovered, <laughs> right? Right. Because in fairness, what you don't know, you, you we have no idea what is still alive, what has been alive even before that. Let's start there. What did you learn? Uh, from researching and writing the book, because I know it took a long time. Uh, I, I played a small, 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 small role in helping like, corral some, <laughs> some, some sources and resources for you. Um, an acknowledgement, yes. I did. Um, so I did, let's start with that question about whether it's the first or not. I went into the book, uh, into the research, expecting to find others. I really didn't think that this was going to turn out to be the first. And I came away convinced that this was the first in terms of U.S. weapons. But, of course, we don't know what else other countries have launched prior. And I, I have no, no doubt that others have been launched before. But in terms of the U.S., I think that, you know, I, what really convinced me was, well, multiple conversations. But in particular, uh, a conversation that I had with General Michael Hayden, who had been the head of the NSA and the CIA, and he told me what a pain it was to get anything approved like this, um, for you know the lawyers to sign off on something like this. The barriers were so high that it just wasn't worth it for them to even propose projects like this. And I think that... He's telling the truth, yeah, the whole truth. Yeah, I mean, I always go into these conversations very skeptical about what anyone is saying, but as I spoke with other people over and over again, it seemed to be corroborated that everyone mentioned over and over again that the the concerns about the rep possible, possible repercussions, because everything is so interconnected, and not knowing what the consequences might be, prevented earlier attacks. And we do have news stories about proposed attacks that were, that were contemplated and then rejected. Libya, for example, where the U.S., um, you know, during the uprising there when the U.S. and allied forces were contemplating launching a cyber attack to take out the communication systems and were concerned that they hadn't, they didn't have it mapped and they don't, they didn't know what the full consequences on the, um, the civilian systems would be. And so they, they nixed that idea. So in terms of the U.S., I think that I'm, I'm pretty confident in saying, although there's long been that story about, you know, the Russian pipeline, that no one... That goes back to 1982, you know, the Russian pipeline explosion, where the story is that there was a logic bomb planted into control system software that was sold by Canada to Russia uh, for its new Russian pipeline, or um, oil pipeline, or gas pipeline, and that um, the logic bomb then caused the pipeline to, for the, the pressure to build up and to explode. But that's never been confirmed, corroborated by anyone. So I think that that still is a question mark on that one. But we know that um, Israel had launched an attack against a what was reported to be a nuclear um, facility being built in Syria uh, prior to Stuxnet. And in that case, they had used... A kinetic attack or a cyber attack? It was, well, it was, a, it was a kinetic attack in terms of, um, you know, dropping bombs on the facility. But prior to that, they had launched a cyber attack to disable the air, air, air defense system. And there were some reports that I'd found that are, they've disappeared from the web except for they were in a, a cached archive that I'd found. It was in an Aviation Week publication. And it described a, an airplane-to-ground electronic attack that probably could have only worked if they had already planted something into the air defense system, and then they sent out a signal that, that triggered it. And what it, what it caused it to do was to go blind 
to the planes in the air. So similar to like Stuxnet we did, you know, Stuxnet recorded the normal operations on the centrifuges and stored that um, until the time that they conducted the sabotage and then it fed back false information to the people monitoring the conditions with the centrifuges to make them think that everything was okay. So this was very similar in the air defense system. They basically uh, tricked the air defense system into thinking that um, the sky overhead was was empty. Right. Do you do you consider the Georgian DDoS attacks prior to that conflict, that mini conflict that didn't last very long? Do you consider that as part of this looking around for prior art? The DDoS attacks against uh, Georgia, Russian Georgia Estonia? conflict, yeah, Estonia. Oh, yeah. No, I don't. Um, I know that it's you know it can be used in combination with a lot of different attacks, and that you know DDoS may be one going forward, but. I know that everyone likes to put that forward as the first cyber warfare, but no one who you know studies this seriously or is in the field considers that cyber warfare. At that time, you know, DDoS attacks were so pedestrian; uh, it was really considered nothing more than you know the equivalent of kind of graffiti. No, I don't consider that cyber warfare. No, right, but then we're playing semantics with what really is a digital weapon. And I, I don't yeah. want us to get too in the weeds on what we consider a digital weapon, and, and who cares what's the, what was the first or not. Um, yeah. When when you researched and wrote the book, what, uh, is there an, an untold part of the story, something you couldn't get closure on? If you were going to write a, a follow-up, what areas are still marky in your mind? Well, the um, how Stuxnet specifically got onto the systems in Iran. So we had two versions of Stuxnet, and one had only one way of spreading. That was the first version of Stuxnet was unleashed probably around to, late 2007. And it had only one way of spreading, and that was via a USB stick. And so that implies that the attackers, U.S. and Israel, had someone inside that could deliver that via the USB stick, either wittingly or unwittingly, right? They could have infected that person, and that person. Um, to the systems on a USB stick or um, with that insider. But then the subsequent version of Stuxnet had multiple ways of spreading and it was clear and it started outside of the Natanz facility that was attacked. So it started against contractors and so in that case it was a worm and was traveling and therefore they lost that inside access or it appears that they lost that inside access. So my, you know, the mystery is around how did that first version actually get onto the systems? Was that was that an insider? Was that um, someone who was just infected and carried it on a USB stick without knowing it? That that sort of traditional tradecraft of spy agencies is still kind of murky for me because you know all of the all the digital stuff leaves some fingerprints, right? It may not leave the exact fingerprints back to the exact player who did something, but it leaves some traces. And that initial step of getting it onto that first USB stick is still murky. How crazy is it that this is the stuff you and I are talking about? Like I said earlier, you're best known for your work at Wired. I remember us chasing the same same stories uh, oh, in Black Hat press rooms and Cancer Quest point to one. With that was those were the big stories of the day. How crazy is it now that we're writing about cyber espionage and political espionage and like high-end nation-state stuff? Uh, do you ever look back and just kind of mull over this this evolution of security writing and and the security stories that are dominating the headlines and wonder like how and when did this happen and the other the other important thing I would, that, that crosses my mind a lot is how much of during that time when we were chasing what we would consider big stories of the time how much of this stuff was already happening that we just had no idea no idea yeah i mean it, it, it's strange i mean you know for people like you and i who have been around doing this for so long it feels like we write the same stories over and over again right like the the same things get hacked the scale of course has grown with you know, hundreds of millions of records fingerprint records like with the opm hack and i think that um you know the scale has grown clearly and the number of players has grown when we, you and i were writing about it it was uh, a lot of the attacks that were happening were initially just uh, people getting their kicks, uh, doing hacks that they could do. And then, of course, e-commerce came in and it became lucrative to do hacking. And that opened it up to a whole new different kind of adversary or player. Uh, with regard to the espionage, you know, I think that all of this stuff was going on. We really became aware of it, I think, for the first time. In a, in a big way with the Google hack. And that was, you know, the first time that we started seeing this on a big scale of, 
Google wasn't the only one hacked in that. It was, uh, I think, dozens of companies were targeted by the same hackers going after source code and um, source code repositories. And then in the case of Google, going after trying to get into the email addresses of activists and journalists. So, yeah, I think that it was happening, um, but maybe, you know, not at that scale until around 2010. I don't I don't think that, you know, the nation state stuff was was happening in the background, but it wasn't, I don't think, happening against the commercial entities. It had um, to have been happening, because I was thinking about this the other day. When yeah. we were, when when I was chasing uh, pawn-to-own CanSec West stories, and, yeah. and the narrative was about cost of zero days and disclosure around whether bugs should be free, blah, blah, blah. Charlie Miller, at the time, had written the, the seminal paper on, yes. on selling vulnerabilities <laughs> to government agencies. And Which got him in a lot of trouble. Got him in a lot of trouble, but it was the first, I, 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 I may be wrong, but it might have been the first documented case of someone saying, hey guys, you don't have to go through these processes. There's another market out there. And th- that opened our eyes to the fact that we, we kind of were hearing these stories at the bar or, the or in the secret. hallways, the yeah. dirty secrets. But he, he kind of put that paper out in the open. And the fact that those prices were being fetched back then not only suggested, but made it quite clear that, you know, governments and three-letter agencies were in the market for these vulnerabilities, and they were only using it for one purpose, which yeah. was some sort of espionage. So it, it, we know for a fact that it dates back to... Well, uh, yeah, I mean, so there was an, actually a, a case, I, I can't remember the date, I, I mentioned it in the book, of the first case that we saw publicly of someone selling a zero-day, it was a... Microsoft Zero Day, I, I can't even remember research from my own book now. I can't remember what year it was, but I, I do mention it where um, it was put on an auction. Actually, it was an e- eBay auction. And it was only up for about a day, and then it got taken down. Yes, and, I remember it vaguely. Yeah, and it, and it was done because the researcher, I mean, at that time, Microsoft was so recalcitrant and so adversarial with researchers who reported vulnerabilities that this researcher just got fed up and decided he was going to publicly shame them. And Did um, eBay remove it because it wasn't a physical object that you could trade in their marketplace? Oh, was that the reason? I I, 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 that, that I have vague recollection of maybe eBay had removed it because at that time you couldn't figure out if you could actually sell code. Yeah, it sounds like a made-up excuse um, by pressure of Microsoft. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I think that, so that was like the first case that we had. And then there was that, um, there was an Italian guy who was selling um, zero days, who'd launched a zero-day market, and that sort of... That was the precursor to Vupin. Yes. Uh, Vupin became oh. the poster child, but prior to well, Vupin, that- it was FR Cert, and I remember this yeah. Italian guy you are talking about. Um, yeah, yeah. So, so there were, you know, sort of pockets, but as you point out, I mean, until Charlie sort of, you know, proudly declared that, yeah, he was selling and what of it, I think everyone was a little, it, it was a dirty little secret that um, researchers kept. And you didn't know if they were boasting or not, because yeah. there was a lot of that at the time. There was a lot of guys, you, you did love this kind of cloak and dagger chit chat <laughs> at the bar. Um, right. And you don't know, who, you, you didn't know at the time who was just BSing or who, how much of it was real until Charlie's paper. Right, and the guys who are serious about it don't really talk about it, Correct. right? Even today. Even uh, today. Even today, there's a ton of it happening that we'll never know about. You, you seem to have taken a, a path towards more this kind of reporting, nation-state type things, espionage, political espionage, uh, focused a lot of that. Was, is that a concerted uh, effort on your part because it's just in, more interesting and intriguing to you? Yeah, it's definitely intriguing to me. I mean, I love anything that is secretive, right? And anything that is not known, I want to I wanna find out. And at the time, you know, that I started writing about this, it was so secretive by the government. I mean, you know, we didn't even know about when, when Stuxnet came out, there was no public information about the vulnerabilities equities process, which is the process the government uses to determine if it's going to disclose a vulnerability. If it's going to be, be offense or defense, right? Right, or they're going to use it to attack. And that didn't come out really. I, I mean, I knew about it when I was doing the research for the book, but the book hadn't come out yet. So it wasn't until really Heartbleed that the government finally went public um, in, I think it was 2013, that it was, um, that it had this process by, whereby it, it judges these things. Right. 
Um, but I mean, I've just I love secretive things and especially nation state stuff, uh, spy trade crap, all that. It just pulls me in. So that's why I sort of veered towards this. And also, there wasn't that much writing about this at the time. I mean, there is. There's national security writing, but it always focused on traditional uh, CIA spying and on around military stuff. And then, of course, after 9-11, there was the internal domestic spying, um, a lot of focus on that. But in terms of nation-state offensive operations, it just wasn't being reported. And so, how, much, how much of it today is even being properly reported because of how, how difficult it is to you know, get resources, get sources and, and players to talk? Yeah, I think that I think we have a, a different problem now. So we still have that problem of uh, getting factual information, and and still there are still a lot of problems with uncovering things that um, are highly classified and are only held closely um, by a small number of people. But what we have now, now that journalists are writing about this, we have uh, sort of abuse of the leak. Um, selective leaks and misinformation. And even Stuxnet, you know, the information around Stuxnet, there was a lot of reported, I want to say misreported facts, but it's not a fact if it's if it's incorrect, um, but misreported information because people who maybe were in the room when a discussion about Stuxnet was, was occurring would then talk to journalists, but they didn't really understand the technical details of what they were, re- what they were telling a journalist. And so, and also then in some cases, the journalists don't have the technical understanding to ask the right follow-up questions. So I think there's a lot of misinformation now coming out, both by people who are trying to manipulate uh, the leaking process and by reporters who don't quite understand what it is that is being leaked to them. And so now we have that that issue of trying to get reporters up to speed um, so that they understand the information that they're being given and know when to be skeptical about it, know when to ask more questions, know when to ask someone, um, you know, what do you know firsthand and what do you know just because you heard it while you were in a room somewhere? You know, those are those are still issues that we have. And we see this a lot with national security stories where you have um, sort of follow-on stories. You'll have the Washington Post break something and then the New York Times will come up with a follow-up and then the Washington Post will follow that. And it's really great the way they work off of each other and they build on a story. But what often happens is that there's misinformation in those stories and then it just gets re-reported and re-reported and it becomes as if it's fact. And that's the problem with covering national security is that you get this in, in drips and drabs and you don't really know um, because the sources are on, um, anonymous, you don't really know as a reader how to judge the authenticity. Right. And in fairness to journalists, there's there's also another issue. Anti-malware vendors have now emerged as brokers of information in this realm. Threat intel vendors, uh, private enterprise have come and kind of filled that void uh, where you couldn't get it. You couldn't get information from official sources. A lot of it is classified. La 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 la. A lot of the private vendors are doing their own internal private research, and then marketing departments are using it to showcase the skills and the expertise within their companies, uh, tracking these different threat actors or tracking these uh, nation-state actors and campaigns. And a lot of times, even the, these private vendors can't agree on, on facts, uh, on attribution. It can't agree on uh, whether code was reused from a previous campaign. It can't agree on who the adversary is. WannaCry is a perfect example. There's still people doubting that WannaCry is connected to North Korea, and that's also another discussion. So in <laughs> fairness to the people reporting it, the, even the experts don't agree. Yeah, and I, you know, I, we are at the mercy of our sources, right? Um, because we can't take the malware apart ourselves. Um, we are relying on the information that they report, and it's become a PR game. I think, you know, in fairness to the researchers, quite often I will find that you talk to the researchers, and they are, um, you know, more speculative or more cautious. Cautious, cautious is the word. Um, but the marketing departments want to get something out. They want to make their company stand out. And so there's this real push to be the first out with information. And maybe, and, and, and you know, as journalists, we want to know who the attribution is, who did this, and who's the victim. Um, again, it's that secretive thing. We want, we want the full story. And that doesn't always, you know, benefit um, or, you know, in service to our readers um, or the industry. You know, we're to blame for that as well because we want those details. Right. I don't know if you know, but I actually worked in one of these companies (laughs) for a long time. 
<laughs> and you would be surprised at how much even internally there are disagreements about uh, around attribution. There are disagreements around which fragment of code belongs where, uh, whether it was seen before, whether it's it, it's it's being copied or not being copied. And you, you very would, strategically avoided saying what company it was that you worked for. I think everyone knows where I work. And the other thing is uh, how how. Uh, down and dirty, the fights can be between the research team and the marketing team to determine when to go public with something. Is it completed? You know, Kostin Ryu, who headed up uh, my team over at Kaspersky, uh, always referred to our work as paleontology, uh, where you kind of just get these fragments everywhere and you're trying to build this, this figure. And when is the figure complete enough that you think you have uh, the picture as accurate as possible? And that, that it'll never be perfect. And you have the marketing and the PR department saying, hey, we need to go public with something. And this constant battle between the research team, even internally, about when to get things ready. Uh, and then, of course, the Kim Zetter calls and the Kim Zetter emails. What do you guys know about this? What do you guys know about that? So there's all these pressures happening. And I think that leads to mistakes as well. Uh, well mistakes yeah. that we may have made and mistakes that others are, are probably making. And also criticism post, you know, no matter whatever decision you make. Oh, you absolutely. Right, with the um, the Regin, Rems, where uh, yeah, exactly. had held on to that information for a year as it was trying to build its picture. And when it ultimately went public with that, there was criticism that it had kept everyone, um, except its own customers, uh, vulnerable to the attacks from Regin because it didn't come clean with the information at first. But there is that internal struggle that you're talking about where do you have enough information now? You want to you catch everything you can get. And if you go out prematurely and too early, then the command and control servers get taken down, the mission gets shut down, the attackers close shop, they go underground further, um, samples that you might have obtained now long, no longer are out there. And so I understand that tension between wanting to hold off in order to get collect everything that you absolutely can collect before you go public. And then while you know there, you have the responsibility to your customers to at least defend them, but I also I think know what gets know, lost. What gets lost in there too is a lot of this information is shared across the industry. That's what I was just going to say. Mm -hmm. Is that yes? From my years of reporting, I I do know that there's a lot of collaboration behind the scenes. Even though these companies are in competition with each other, there is a lot of collaboration between researchers. I think people would be shocked at the level of collaboration that happens on on, on these campaigns. No one is holding on to it to protect their only their customer. No yeah. one. I, I was certainly pleased to see that um, when I was doing uh, even the reporting on Stuxnet, when I saw the amount of sharing that was going on there, it w it surprised me. And I, I was really heartened by it, actually, even when the, you know, maybe management <laughs> in companies doesn't know the sharing is going on. The researchers themselves are very de devoted to the service that they're providing. And even at that lower level, I mean, they are sharing things, um, even if it's not with official company approval. Correct. So, Correct. Um, a lot of things get shared to the guys who will write the signature, write the protection things. They are in their little groups sharing this information back and forth all the time. Yeah. Um, and Regin was a perfect example of that. that the, the, the fact that no one went public with it didn't mean that, that I would guess most companies weren't already protected. Microsoft had the information. Microsoft may have been the first with the information at the time. That's uh, really interesting. Put in, put in Stuxnet aside, has there been any big cyber espionage known campaign or activity that surprised you? Wow, this government is that advanced? Wow, this group is that advanced? Has there been any anything outside of the big, big ones that really surprises you? As, uh, uh, I, it more surprises me. The ones, uh, the ones that stay under the radar and the ones that are touted as being more advanced than I believe they actually are. So, for example, Iran, when we it, it, this is where I talk about sort of the abuse of the leak process. When the government decides that it wants to make a boogeyman out of a certain country, you get this pile on of leaks and sort of low level. Now we now we see you know, the indictments of the Iranians and things like that. And you see sort of this piling on um, when the government wants to make a point and they're really using the media for for this effect. And and I understand why they're doing it. They want deterrence. They want these countries to know that are just getting in the game. Uh, you better watch it. We've got an eye on you. Um, we have methods, means, things like that. I understand that. But um, they're creating um, the illusion of capabilities that aren't there. And I know that they want to prevent the abilities 
from reaching that level um, by going public like this. But I think that we see a lot of headlines that are designed to scare and and create this fear of an adversary that doesn't really, it's not at that level yet. And so Iran is one of them. I think even the reporting over the Russian hacking of the election, really, I think it was quite an afterthought of the Russians in terms of what they got and their efforts. I think that they it was really a low-level effort, and I think if they'd really put their efforts in, I mean, Russia is, I think, what I consider to be one of the top countries in this. If they had really put their efforts into subverting the election, they could have done a lot more than they did. So I think it was kind of a half-hearted effort. But I think the government is correct then in, you know, raising awareness of this for what they could do going forward. But those are the kinds of things that surprise me is uh, the kinds of things that are presented as these really large scale, serious events that turn out to be less than they actually are, but they're more of a cautionary thing, if that makes sense. Yeah, I, I, I actually agree. I want to switch gears a little bit and talk about OPSEC. And as a, as a journalist, we know the journalists are, 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 are a big target of uh, some of these adversaries. I don't want to call them governments because it could be anyone. How, how much do you view yourself, yourself individually as a target? And uh, what are, without you know, letting out your secret tradecraft with your cassette recorder, uh, <laughs> how, much, how much are you actually taking that seriously? And again, how much of that bleeds over from just trying to protect your computer to watching over your shoulder in a coffee shop or any of that kind of spy movie type stuff? I, I, I think I'll talk in generalities on this, but I'll... I, I, you understand you know, what I'm saying. I, just, I understand yeah. what you're saying, but yeah, I, let's talk about that, that uh, tape recorder um, that you're laughing at. <laughs> <laughs> Let me tell the story quickly. So Kim is researching the book you're researching uh, your Stuxnet book, and you came to one of our conferences in Cancun and uh, booked some time to talk to Costin Ryu on his work uh, researching Stuxnet and breaking apart the malware. And you guys are scheduled to talk on the bus on the way to Chichen Itza. And Kim shows up with a tape recorder, old <laughs> school cassette tape recorder that you press these buttons on. That I can't even find cassettes for anymore. You I mean, it's so out of date. <laughs> well, was that a conscious decision to go old school, or yeah. is that your thing? Yeah, I mean, I, so with tape tape recording conversations, especially if you're talking about things that uh, you know are going to be off the record in some cases um, or sensitive, you're crossing borders, and any of your electronics can be seized at a border, and it takes only a matter of seconds for someone to plug that recorder into a computer and download all of your recordings. So if I'm traveling with a cassette recorder, obviously that's thwarting um, that capability. If they want to re-record all of my cassette tapes, they're going to have to find another cassette tape and uh, and play it. Um, <laughs> Just like you do when you have to transcribe. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so that was uh, an obvious, that was an intentional step. So you're not I walking around with a tape recorder every day doing your interviews? Um, I can't find the cassettes anymore, as I, <laughs> as I you got to go on eBay. made it very difficult for my OPSEC these days. <laughs> That's interesting. Um, yeah. <laughs> but yeah, so that, so there's that issue. And um, I think that, you know, we've had to become much more cautious. I think I think the problem for a lot of journalists is that even if even if you want to take OPSEC seriously, you have maybe a company um, that doesn't take it seriously. And this was this was always a frustration for me, uh, even at Wired, you know, a company that you would expect would be sort of ahead of the curb. It was a constant battle to get um you know, security taken seriously internally. And I know Wire's not the only one. I mean, I talk to journalist colleagues and they have the same the same concerns and the same I think I think maybe it's a little people are a little more aware now, certainly the New York Times after it was hacked. Oh gave major props to Runa Sandvik and the Runa, team. Runa, yes. yeah. And the intercept has full time security and um and so I think that it's become the norm, particularly for uh, large-scale news outlets now, but for a long time it just wasn't. And the reality is that uh, the best OPSEC gets defeated or broken down by just a simple mistake. Everyone might be PGPing and doing all their encryption right, and then someone ac accidentally forwards it uh, in, in the clear, and then all is lost. 
Well, what's a, what I don't understand is uh, companies that go to all of these efforts for security, or, or even don't, um, that use Slack. Okay. I, I don't understand this this trend toward using third-party applications inside a newsroom to discuss um, your source. issues, yeah. To discuss sources. Or anything uh, in the cloud, for the matter. Anything um, in the cloud, yes. I just... I, you, I, 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 and I, and I, I just, I, maybe it's just not the awareness hasn't been passed down, but people tend to have a false sense of security. Okay, you have a Slack channel, you're, you know, we have an editor who's the manager of that Slack channel, and they don't think that anyone at Slack who has, has access to your Slack channel might may have be able to get into it. Slack, of course, has been hacked. And I certainly, when I was at Wired, received a note from Slack saying that someone was trying to get into my, my Slack account. So I think that, um, and we, we you know we saw instances where some some of those conversations have been exposed on the internet. So I think that we, you know, you and I, we both know security is hard, and it is the opposite of convenience. You want to be able to have a program that your writers and editors can use to talk easily, and you don't want to have to go to the trouble of building your own program. But that is the risk of using a third-party uh, program for that. Listen, we, we, we are, you mentioned it earlier, we're talking about these breaches, big, big, massive breaches that happen every day. You would be surprised at how many of these breaches are just common, basic mistakes for key things. Someone clicked on, a, on an attachment. People are supposed to click on attachments. This is why security is hard. People are supposed to click on attachments. When you get a resume, you're supposed to open it to try to read it. People are, are, are slow to patch. Being slow to patch is not a, a victim of negligence. This is like... It's hard to patch in an enterprise with, you know, not even, inter- not even an enterprise. If, if you're an individual and uh, you get a patch notification, it can take sometimes, you know, an hour, two, two hours, three hours to be for fully updated. Yeah, to be downloaded. Yeah, and then you know, just Amazon Web Services configuration error. You had mentioned earlier about sophisticated and how amazing some of these campaigns are. They don't need to be anymore. And that drives a lot of the mistakes that journalists make, um, or that drives a lot of the compromises that we're seeing uh, around, you know, journalists and sources. And uh, it, it, it's crazy. It keeps it, it keeps our industry alive, but it's 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 just mind-boggling to me how many of these major, major, major bridges come down to someone clicking on a phishing email, and and, and a piece of malware gets into one part of the com- company, and two months later, your data is sitting somewhere. Um, yeah, but I'm I'm always frustrated by how we, not we. I mean, uh, how the user gets blamed for clicking on attachments, and it, people talk about it as the the user being the weakest link in the chain. But it exactly as you point out, we are meant to click on attachments. As journalists, we get untrusted documents all the time from people we don't know. That's our job to click on them. It's the job of the industry to build a system that won't harm us when we do do that. Either you know you you create as a as a uh, standard virtual machines that you use to click on those things. I don't know, but something has to be done um, that, that doesn't blame the user. It's the system itself that needs to be fixed. Just going back to uh, advanced threat actors, and I ask Costin this question a lot. I ask a lot of the guys who are very, very deep in the weeds uh, tracking these campaigns uh, this question, and I, I, I get differing answers all across uh, the board, and I'm curious about your thoughts. How many advanced, uh, I hate using APTs, but let's use APTs for the purposes of discussion. What percentage of all APTs do you think have been discovered to date? And what percentages <laughs> remains undiscovered? Costin believes that we are, we know, when, when the collective we, the industry, a collective we know about 90 to 95% of everything out there. I think he's yeah. completely grossly inaccurate and wrong. Really? Personally. I mean, I have to defer to Costin on that because if there's anyone who knows, it's Costin. Right, but you uh, only know what you know, right? You only know what you know, sure, but he has a good idea of what, what you're seeing repeated over and over again. And look, it's it's hard to retool um, good offensive weapons. We see that with the equation group. You know, once uh, Kaspersky exposed that, it's a huge expense, especially if it's this large platform of, um, you know, dozens and dozens of plugins. Come on, You've by the time to- that was announced, it was already years old. We, You have to guess or assume that there's new, uh, newfangled things that are out there yeah, that but you it's, don't it's, know it's, about. 
you know, you're limited in the vulnerabilities because um, if a vulnerability gets burned, and it's a really good one in the way that the LNK vulnerability that Stuxnet used was a really, really good one. You know, you all, you don't get very many of those, right? That are that are that widespread. And I think that um, so I think that in terms of you know what Costin is saying about ninety to ninety five percent being discovered, maybe I would go a little lower. Um, at first, when you start first started asking the question, I was thinking, oh, maybe we know about thirty percent. But then when you said Costin said ninety percent. I mean, I can't argue with him on that. Um, yeah, but I, he could be just a BS bolster. He's not. He gives no, me this. Not, he gives me this. Not, come no, on. he's not that. This, this <laughs> is what he does. He goes, come on, come on. No, but on. I think it is really expensive to retool. And if you're doing it, if you're doing, if you have good tools in the way the, the NSA does. But why are you assuming everything has to be retooled? Why can't there be multiple groups running multiple campaigns and equation group could have just been one? Why, why, why is there this assumption that uh, everything out of equation was everything that they... Well, I'm, I'm not assuming that, but I'm saying that if, if you don't retool, then you've got tools that are going to be discovered very quickly. If you've got, if you're reusing code and the signatures are catching that, then you're not lasting very long. And you said APT, so I'm assuming real APT, as you and I understand them, is a sophisticated group, not just some you know ragtag um, group that, of mercenaries that are hired by, I don't know, and uses hacking team tools. I they, think that, they do exist, by the way. They, yeah, they do exist. The mercenaries do exist. But I think I think that we have to make a distinction between the really sophisticated ones, and you know I think we kind of have a, a level of script kitty nation state actors now, and um, who don't care if their tools are going to get wasted because they've got dozens more behind them, counting on you know people not not being looking not looking for them and not having antivirus and all that. I feel like I'm rambling, but no, I think ramble I, away. This is a great I, discussion. I think I need to go. I I, I really need. I think need to, to defer to Costin. I mean, of course, there's always that percentage that we don't know. But I think that it's at you know the ten to twenty percent that we really don't know. Okay, so you'll go. You'll go in the eighty percent range. I, I I still think that's very very high. Okay. What do you think? What's your percentage? I think it's fifty fifty at best. Uh, and this is not just what Costin and his team knows, but just the industry in general, every vendor everywhere. I think I think there's so much more hidden under the surface. There's so many campaigns and groups operating just quietly and silently hitting just individual targets where it's not, there are no mistakes made, there's no mass spreading. Stuxnet, well, Stuxnet, 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 you wrote a book about Stuxnet because someone made a mistake. Yeah. And it became yeah. a worm, right? Yeah, if, something if it, the Israelis. Um, <laughs> you can say, you know, you uh, the, the whole attribution thing is another subject I don't want us to get into, but uh, uh, the attribution on that, I think we, they, there, there's been consensus on it, but there's attribution is such a muddy, muddy, muddy topic where it's so easy to get things wrong and so hard to get things right. It's... Well, there, well I, I, what I thought was interesting about that is anytime you have a partnership between two countries... Um, and you share code like that, you really have to trust the other partner that they're not going to misuse the code or use it in a reckless way that gets your operation exposed. And that's, you know, what happened here with Stuxnet is that there was this partnership between two countries who have, who have kind of the same goal, um, but one's goal is, or its its mission is more urgent. And of course, the Israelis have a, a life or death urgency around anything that happens in the Middle East. And um, don't necessarily care uh, if you know something is it, is exposed or um, is reckless like that. Um, but I, what I, a question that I wanted to ask you was: In your mind, who do you think are the top players and uppercomers, and who are those silent actors that you say are counting for the fifty percent? I think there's a totally unknown world of uh, economic espionage that's happening where. Uh, I'm, and I'm guessing I have no internal knowledge. I have no knowledge of this. I think there's just so much money involved in in economic espionage where uh, I don't even want to say this because people will think I know, you know, because I've been in, in part of a security research team for so long. People, whenever I mention these kind of suppositions or my own speculation, people think that I know. So I'm very, very hesitant. This is not anything that I know about. But I'm guessing like, hedge funds uh, tracking pre-IPO companies and using really sophisticated es uh, uh, cyber, s cyber espionage campaigns to break into companies uh, for that purpose. I think that happens. That is happening a lot. 
and oh, it's largely I, unreported. That okay, kind so of it's thing. not nation state. No, 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 not necessarily okay. nation state. But I'm talking about real high-end espionage, where there, there, there are groups of people invested in zero days, investigate, invested in uh, breaking into companies, staying undetected, pilfering information from very, very specific people. Yes, I thought. I thought when you were asking the question about cost, and I thought that was regarding nation-state APTs, and so. But, so when you're saying fifty-fifty of, of what we don't know, it includes sort of the commercial sector hacking that's going on and the economic espionage. Yes, right. some of that. But I also think, for instance, let's just uh, use Animal Farm as an example. You're familiar with Animal Farm, yeah. the the Babar, the French, right? What, what, what is the, the only French intelligence? Correct. Yeah. That's the only known one out of that group. I am. You can't tell me that's the only campaign they've run. They probably have, but not a. No, and and France was accused more than a decade ago of of engaging in economic espionage they're against much, the U.S. They're so. much more advanced. They're much more advanced than we think they are. There, and I think there are a lot of companies in Asia. There, not companies. Sorry, con, uh, governments in Asia, intelligence agencies in some parts of the world that are very very active in their part of the world. And it's kind of like this denied area intelligence where because we are not looking there, you're not seeing things. Um, there's another 20, 25 percent of activity happening in some parts of the world that we are just completely blind to because one, maybe we're just not interested in it. It's not interesting enough. Uh, but I think there, there are probably a lot of really interesting fun zero days circulating there that we'll never hear about. Uh, there's a lot that's happening that we don't know about. Uh, yeah, it, it reminds me of a story that I wrote, I think it was back in 2008, about a guy in Sweden who had set up a tour exit node, a couple of tour exit nodes. And um, I forget what his what the reason was that he did that, if it was just to be part of the tour network or if he wanted to do research. And he was discovering pilfered um, documents and, and stuff coming from uh, the Dalai Lama and Tibetan government and, and exile. And other, you know, corporate documents and bank stuff and stuff. It was all going through his Tor exit node and was un unencrypted. And it was later, um, we think that it was the ghost net, which was Chinese uh, espionage. Mm -hmm. But I'm wondering, I often wonder, like, how many, if, you know, if someone, you know, sets up these Tor exit nodes to see how much uh, information is being pilfered by these groups in this way, what you uncover. I, you know, there are all these experiments that, you know, when you, when you purchase used computers and phones on eBay or whatever, and you see what someone has left on those devices, we see those stories every couple of years, someone writes something like that. And it's always intrigued me, uh, those Tor exit nodes, what is going through them? And um, what, is, what, do, what is it that the owners of those Tor exit nodes can see? And I imagine that um, a lot of what you're describing there may be going through those nodes. I'm sticking with my 50-50. 50, 50, 50 <laughs> unknown and 50 known. I don't think we are close to anywhere, 80 or 90%. But I could be if wrong. You're if you're expanding, I'd be happy to be wrong. If you're expanding it to regular espionage and not just nation-state attacking, I agree with you. Okay. But I was thinking of only, you know, sort of the, the large-scale APTs. But yes, I agree that there's, there's this whole sea of uh, hacking that's going on that we we don't know about absolutely two i got two last questions before we wrap up and and i i asked you this question before when we were on stage uh, in cancun uh, your own personal kind of struggles with writing about researching and exposing cyber espionage or cyber campaigns that could be deemed in many ways as useful for security and it comes back to this encryption debate and, you know, whether we should break into a terrorist iPhone if we know for a fact that physical attack is, is imminent. Do you ever struggle with own morality of writing about or exposing or burning a campaign that is for the greater good, so to speak? Because you could argue that Stuxnet was for the greater good. I mean, you can make that argument. Some people can make that argument. Well, but I, I mean, I, I have it easier than the actual researchers who have to make that calculation because I'm just writing about what they've discovered. I, I didn't, I'm not the one who exposed it, nor the one who interrupted it. So in just writing about it, you know, Stuxnet could not have continued once it was discovered. And well, I mean, actually, there are reports that they that there were subsequent versions of Stuxnet that were unleashed. But once the, you know, Symantec came out with its final dossier in November of 2010, which made it clear without a doubt um, that this had been targeted against the centrifuges and the tons, 
you know, Iran shut down that Natanz facility for about 10 days, presumably to wipe out Stuxnet from all of its systems. So, I, you know, I'm just the reporter of the information, but the information was already out there. Symantec had already exposed it. And I think that it's it's a it's a bigger question for those companies to tackle than for me on the reporting end. I'm always, as a journalist, going to go after what's unknown. That's my job. Right, right. Um, no, I get it. No, I'm just... Uh, with, with some limitations, I want to add. I mean, you know, when okay, we... Okay, so let's talk about that. When you... What are, what, right. are, what are some limitations that you take well, into consideration? Well, you know, when I've done stuff for The Intercept, and The Intercept, you know, holds the, the Snowden archive of, of NSA documents, they don't publish something without first going to the NSA, without first going to the government of who that the government agency that's affected by what, by whatever document they're going to publish. They don't publish anything without going to that agency first and um, discussing with them and giving them a chance to make a claim for why something shouldn't be published, not for why a story should be published, but for why well, open discussion under ramifications. Right, which, which of certain which, things going public should be redacted exactly. Um, and that's the case with every reputable news outlet. Um, the, you know, the Washington Post and the New York Times all have a history of doing that. Now, the, the problem, is, of course, is that you've got to maintain the integrity of the story and get out the information that you think the public has a right to know um, while also, in serious cases, protecting something. That right. may involve just delaying publication of something. There are, in, in, all, in almost all these cases, there are national security ramifications. There are, but I think that in many cases, I mean, for because the government and and here's I have to lay the blame on, on the feet of the government, because there is such excessive secrecy on the part of the government, and you know this is not just us saying it. People like Michael Hayden talks about the overclassification of stuff. Um, because there is this overclassification and secrecy, the the public doesn't have the ability, and even in many cases, Congress doesn't have the ability to have a valid discussion about decisions that the government and actions that the government is taking on behalf of the public. And so if the government wasn't so secretive about these things, we wouldn't have so many leaks, right? If Congress was had been properly informed about a lot of things, and uh, in, particularly with NSA surveillance, we wouldn't have had the leaks that we had. I mean, and look at, you know, even Edward Snowden talks about this about if the gov- if the system of reporting wrong whistleblowing thing yeah right if the whistleblowing uh, worked if in, in, in inspector generals if all if that whole system worked the way it was in t- in supposed to work then you would have less leaking i mean it, remember the case of the um, uh, i forget it was uh, if it was binny who'd gone to former nsa worker who'd gone to the wall street journal with information only after a congressional staffer said there's nothing that we can do about this. We've taken this as far as we can. I suggest that you take it to a journalist. That's right. what the fourth estate, what journalism is for. We are des- we are designed to be another eye on the government. And if the other eyes worked the way that they were supposed to work, then you know journalists would have less to write about. Uh, this is a, a, a discussion we can have forever. Do you? Last question. Do you think it's? And I asked I asked this question of Catherine Latriante last year. Do you think it's ever appropriate for an anti-malware vendor to turn a blind eye to a campaign if it's deemed again, quote unquote, for the greater good? If it's a campaign that's targeting, you know, child pornography or real, real. Uh, hardcore cases you know for you're an anti-malware vendor you know for a fact this is a campaign targeting real terrorist organization there are real 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 risks that exposure or burning of this campaign could put lives in danger do you think it's ever appropriate for an anti-malware vendor to quote-unquote whitelist or turn a blind eye to one of those campaigns or do you think that's one of those black and white cut and dried thing where you just can't what did Catherine say (laughs) Uh, she said she wouldn't write a law about it (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I think yeah I because I think that's a lot of uh, I, I think yeah. that's that's a discussion that's happening at a lot of uh, yes. security vendors today and 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 the differing opinions are really interesting to me. I you know I uh, in, the, in the closing chapter of the Stuxnet book I addressed that issue of when I'd spoken with the semantic researchers because they they knew very early that this was a nation state attack Correct. and they knew um that it was likely the US. And yet they pushed forward, and they never had any pressure from their managers to not push forward. How much of that was just an intellectual exercise, though? Just a thrill of pushing forward to know. Look, I think in that case, that that's it. It it, partly that was it, and partly it was. 
I think that they were honest in saying, um, look, we don't know what we don't know about this yet. The, we, we could, all evidence seemed to point that Iran was the target, but they couldn't be they couldn't be certain about that and they couldn't be certain that it was written well enough that it wouldn't have collateral damage and so they had to take it apart in order to know that if it that even if they thought it was it was targeting Iran that it wouldn't then spread to the US and let's say cause collateral damage to water treatment plants or chemical facilities whatever so i understood the it's not it wasn't entirely just intellectual it was also uh, with customers in mind but I, when they told me that that they that they pushed forward and they didn't have any pushback, I saw what they went through, and I, you know, I went through months of speaking with them during p- different periods of the investigation, and then also after the final dossier was, was published and the the effects that it had on Iran, and I I can't say this for certain, but I feel like there that may not be the case going forward in some places. And I, I don't want to say semantic specifically, but there are certainly companies that, um, CrowdStrike, for instance, that I think probably has an internal policy that that maybe wouldn't expose um, certain things. I don't know that for certain. I'm just thinking because CrowdStrike has, um, uh, you know, one of its top executives comes from the FBI. I think that there are, each company has to grapple with these decisions on their own and have their own internal policy. But you and, didn't answer my question. Yeah, what are, what do I think about it? Do you um, think it's, it's a, appropriate for them to ever not detect? Oh, see, it's hard. It's not. It's not a black and white thing. I I want to say no. I want to say no. It's not appropriate. But if someone were to come to me with a case and say this is why we withheld it for sixty days, the government asked us to, or even maybe they got a court order. Let's say we don't know if that doesn't happen, right? Right. Uh, maybe there are secret court orders happening that tell a, that that prevent a company from patching something that they know about. I think you know. I. It's just such a slippery slope, though. It, it is a slippery it slope. It is such a slippery slope, and we'll leave it right there. Thank you very much. Come back anytime. <laughs> You're welcome. Come Thanks back for when you have a big story we can talk about. I will. Okay. Thanks. Bye. Thanks, Ryan. <laughs> 